Welcome everyone to the 2018 Cambridge Science Festival. We're so pleased you've decided to join us for this lecture on the 100,000 Genomes Project, Transforming Precision Healthcare. So today's speakers, we have Dr. David Bentley and Professor Mark Caulfield, and I'm going to do a very brief introduction to both of these gentlemen, and then they will go ahead and speak, and we'll have a few minutes for questions at the end, hopefully. Um, Professor Caulfield does have to leave right at 8 o'clock, so we are going to have to cut it off right around the 8 o'clock mark. So Dr. David Bentley, who will go first, is the Vice President and Chief Scientist at Illumina and has played a leading role in the Human Genome Project. His long-term interest is the study of human sequence variation and its impact on human health and disease. His current research is focused on fast, accurate sequencing of human genomes for adoption and benefit in healthcare with early applications including rare genetic disease and cancer. These, ap these applications are exemplified in the goals of the 100,000 Genome Project, a partnership that includes Illumina, Genomics England, and the National Health Service. And then he will be followed by Professor Mark Caulfield, who is the Chief Scientist for Genomics England. He graduated in medicine from the London Hospital Medical College and trained in clinical pharmacology at St. Bart's Hospital, where he developed a research program in molecular genetics of hypertension. He was elected a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences in 2008, and in 2013, he became an NIHR senior investigator and was appointed as the chief scientist for Genomics England for the NHS 100,000 Genome Sequencing Project. Please joining me in welcoming Dr. Bentley and Professor Caulfield. Great. Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction, and thank you to all of you for, for coming to join this ex very exciting project that we will share with you between us. Um, the theme for this year is Making Sense of the World, uh, and I think very appropriately for this evening's uh, discussion, it's making sense of the, the, the people in the world and the people throughout the world, because the DNA sequence of a person is indeed that, the DNA sequence that represents humankind uh, around the world. Uh, and the individuals within it. And that's really what we're going to explore uh, today. Uh, I thought I'd start by showing you um, uh, what a genome looks like. Uh, the genome on the top left uh, is a series of chromosomes. They've been known for, uh, for 100 years or more. And you can see there are pairs of chromosomes because a particular dye shows two chromosome sixes, in fact, uh, one inherited from each parent. And that's a visual of the human genome right there. If you zoom in and tease out the material that it is made of, you start to see on the top right uh, some beads on a wire. Uh, and this is work, in fact, that was done in, here in Cambridge. But it shows that the, the, the beads are beads of protein, and they are strung together on this very fine thread, which is the DNA of which the genome is made. And if you look to the bottom left, you now see those threads of DNA that have been spread out rather more with the, uh, the globules or proteins removed. And you really do see this thread-like structure, and it genuinely is a continuous thread of DNA. And that continuous thread of a single molecule gives it so many of the properties of genetics uh, and coding information uh, that is vital to its function and vital for all of us. So you really see the DNA. That's about as close as you can get to seeing DNA. So from then on, it's a model, and you see the classic double helical model there, the double helix, and you see the steps in the ladder which reflect a very simple alphabetical code, the four-letter code of A, C, G, and T, which is essentially written down in an unequivocal order by the chemical structure of DNA, uh, and that is the nature of the genome. Uh, so this illustrates what's in the DNA sequence of a genome. A genome looks like the backdrop you see there, a string of bases that have been decoded uh, by a process of sequencing. And what you see in certain points in there is that actually the individual bases in some cases are colored in red or blue, and that's just a signature to say that in that position, different people may have a different base. And that now transforms us from the sequence which represents a human, the genetic code of a human, to the individual uh, bases that distinguish us as individuals. And so the entire sequence of a genome, your genome, my genome, uh, is, is very much uh, similar. Uh, it's a run of three billion bases per genome. Um, but there are three million differences between my genome, your genome, the next person's genome, and so on. And those differences are really what we spend much of our time addressing, because not only do they encode the individuality that we inherit from our parents, 
but they are also responsible for the disease conditions and the areas that we're looking to, to address. So that genome contains 22,000 or so genes. Uh, we still don't know the exact number, but those genes encode much of the functionality uh, and how the code is read by cells, uh, but, but not all of it. Um, I also wanted to particularly mention this year, uh, one of the key features of sequencing the human genome, which as Anita introduced, was something that I was very much involved with. Uh, it was why the Sanger Center was set up, now the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Uh, and the Human Genome Project, which is a major international effort, uh, there was one really defining element of doing the human genome as an international project. It was to make it freely available around the world. And this was the well-known Bermuda Statement. Uh, its meaning is essentially uh, uh, written at the bottom there. That this group that met, the group of us who met in Bermuda in 1996, uh, we agreed that the reference human genome sequence information should be freely available and in the public domain in order to encourage research and development and to maximize its benefits to society. And those words were written down at that time. Uh, they were formulated, uh, not least, by a few colleagues, but, um, but, but notably John Solston, who really led uh, this theme. Uh, John Solston, I just wanted to pause for a moment to remember he actually died on Tuesday uh, this, this last week, uh, age 75. And he was a real mover and a visionary and a thinker and drove much of this freedom of information, accurate sequencing, providing a reference for all to use for benefit. Uh, and uh, because of that action by him and his colleagues in the International Human Genome Consortium, that's why we're here today. That's why we're able to do the sorts of work that we're here to do. Um, just to pause, to continue the story for a moment about DNA. Of course, DNA is very much a story about Cambridge, not exclusively by any means. But again, I wanted to continue to call out, we are here tonight, assembled in Cambridge with a rich history of DNA uh, and genetics and genomes. Uh, and Watson and Crick, well known perhaps uh, as the history of Cambridge in the actual uh, development of the model of the structure for DNA, uh, aided by the, by the data from, from Wilkins and Franklin. And then Fred Sanger, uh, who developed the sequencing method which we all used for the human genome. Uh, again, a, a Cambridge molecular biologist, a, a very visionary worker, innovator. And fast forward to, uh, to, the, to the present century, you can see the laboratory environment has evolved somewhat. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and provides a very creative thinking, I think, environment, is fair to say. Uh, it is, in fact, the Pants and Arms, which is very, not, not very far from here at all, where the two founders of the company Selexa that developed the sequencing we use today and eventually has largely supplanted the Sanger sequencing, Shankar Balasibramani and David Kleneman, uh, were pictured there in, 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 I think that was 2006, so I guess we were some way into the, the story of technology by then. Okay, um, so this just describes the methodology uh, which Shankar and David uh, and many colleagues uh, that are still indeed working with us today developed a methodology for DNA sequencing, which essentially threw away the rule book uh, and actually deposited single DNA molecules onto the flat surface of glass. And you can see here a DNA molecule uh, which is planted onto the gray glass surface and is then amplified to form a cluster. Uh, and that cluster forms the template for sequencing. I'm afraid the animation actually isn't working in this presentation, so I'm sorry you lose some of the flavor of the life of this. I don't know if anything can be done about that, uh, but uh, there is no animation here. Um, but what I can describe to you anyway in, in brief, in detail, is the clusters provide the template for DNA sequencing and essentially the process is to copy the process by which cells make DNA. They make DNA by taking a strand of the four-letter alphabet and they synthesize the opposing strand uh, by a base pair system. And you can see here that we've illustrated by adding bases, these reversible terminators, which are not natural bases, but they have colored tags on them, and those colored tags identify which base has been incorporated. Put the slide under a microscope, a very big microscope, and you can see there nine images, uh, which should be advancing elegantly across the slides. I'm sorry they're already there. But you can see that's the same image taken nine times over, and I think you can all actually read a sequence right there. Yellow, red, yellow, red, red, yellow. Those are the, the decoding of the bases by the color imaging to give you the information. Uh, the key thing here is that this methodology uh, is, ah, we have the animation, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, the key uh, uh, element of this disruptive technology was the sheer scale uh, of it. Uh, this illustrates the increase in the output of this system as we gradually developed it uh, in Chesterford, just outside Cambridge. And you can see the number of, of billions of bases per run which have been generated with successive evolution of the technology. 
And to put it into perspective, uh, it's a million-fold growth in output. It's actually now three million, which I'm sure uh, members of the audience would correct me very quickly. Um, but it catalyzed the transition from a $3 billion genome. That was the, the genome that John Salston and I and many colleagues were working on through to something which could be done in $1,000 for three days. And in fact, it's now less than that. This slide has not been updated. And you can also see when the Human Genome Project was finished. So what we have now is two components which have given rise to what we're talking about today. The first was a publicly available human genome sequence, sequence at great cost and labor and love. And now you have a technology that can make that sequence or sequences of individual accessible to anyone at a very affordable cost in a very short space of time. And the illustration is perhaps reflected in this fact that we identify that it is a tipping point for science as a whole. That in the last eight years or so, we've gone with the cost of the genome dropping to $1,000. And that, of course, unlocks the opportunity to sequence hundreds, thousands, millions of genomes uh, in a short space of time and really transform uh, our understanding, indeed, uh, making sense of the world through individual genomes. So the revolution of personal genome sequencing is, is something which we, we've described today. I want to take a moment to just reflect on genomes. I've talked a lot about the structure of the genomes and how we've been sequencing them. So what it actually means to you as an individual, as a family, uh, the genetics uh, of, of, uh, uh, of ultimately of disease as, as well as your genetic makeup. So the genome, as I've said, is a complete description of your genetic makeup. But it's not static. It is dynamic. And what I mean by that... It's composed of, first of all, the germline, the genetic variance, variations that you inherit from your parents, uh, and they go together to form a unique new individual. That's you, for the sake of argument. But then after that initial conception, uh, it continues. The cells grow. You form your, yourselves. Uh, and the entire body is made up of cells that continue to accumulate changes in the DNA in different cells. And these are the somatic variations accumulating over a person's lifetime, some of which then give rise to cancer if they actually have a deleterious effect. They hit a gene or multiple genes, uh, and that leads to, to, to the loss of growth control. So moving to the personal genome sequence and illustrating how it might be used, and I just used this slide for a simple illustration. We don't need to worry about the details. But on the left-hand side is the Human Genome Project and all the research that's gone into it to understand what a genome looks like, what a human genome looks like, and from that synthesizing uh, meaningful uh, snippets of information uh, that might uh, uh, give interpretation on disease. On the right is your personal sequence, owned by the individual or the doctor, which leads to a consultation whereby the two sources of information are put together to help use genomic information from past research to arrive at a clinical decision. Very importantly, this can then be fed back to add to knowledge as a whole, and this is very much the, these two concepts are very much the concept of the 100,000 Genomes Project. Uh, and how genomic information goes all the way from the Human Genome Project through to a clinical individual patient benefit, a decision, and then the information from that is fed back to understand the genome as a whole and understand or make sense, uh, perhaps, of the genomes of people around the world. I'd just like to give you a couple of examples. These are the original examples which, in fact, gave rise to the Genomics England concept. Uh, we talked about this in government, uh, in uh, various circles, scientific circles, and these examples illustrate quite simply what happens and what has continued to happen on a grand scale ever since. We have somebody, uh, a male child, uh, with a, a, an undiagnosed condition. We don't know what's wrong. It's something genetic. Uh, you actually go through a single whole genome test in four days in this case. Uh, the result comes back. You have an entire genome of information. And what you do is quite simply filter down the information until you're left with what looks like the right answer. At that point, the answer or answers are compared to the clinical information that the doctor has seen, and that provides a means to either confirm the diagnosis directly uh, or, or to indeed extend the investigations to see whether or not this is a new variant and a new disease. And this process has happened over and over again. So that's a rare genetic disease which is resolved by whole genome sequencing in a trio, in a family. Here's a cancer example, which again we did in 2012 to illustrate or to find out for ourselves what could be done a recurrent brain tumor not responding to treatment. In this case, the three biopsies and the normal DNA sample were sequenced in around 10 days. Uh, and once again, the filtration process, but in this case, it revealed a different type of mutation. Uh, you can see an amplification of the signal there compared to the normal. And this actually amplified not one, but three different genes which are involved in the control of cell growth, 
and therefore inevitably loss of growth of uh, control in cells leads to cancer. What it also revealed, however, was a target for well-known drugs which are already available that might be used to actually block the system. And so this provided new opportunities to a, a patient who was in hospital uh, and actually was not responding to prior treatments. So in both cases, whether it's the rare disease or the cancer, this whole genome sequencing, examining the entire genome and focusing in informatically uh, uh, interpretation actually gives rise to a diagnosis or a treatment in many cases. So whole genome sequencing being the entire genetic information uh, allows you to capture the entire genetic information in one go, in one test, in two days or three days. And there's a variety of different variants, which I won't go into here, uh, but you can get the picture of the richness of those changes or those differences between us. Single base changes, gaps, expansions of pieces of DNA, structural variants, and also the mitochondrial variants, another part which is very important, and indeed mutations do cause disease. The potential impact is huge, and these numbers are illustrative based on early collaborations and small groups. Uh, so it's possible to move quickly with small collaborations. Uh, one of these is in the US, the first one. Uh, the second is in Newcastle. The third one is here in Cambridge. But look at those figures. 66% of genetic disease patients in multiple studies have a conclusive diagnosis coming from whole genome sequencing. And there's a strong recommendation to make whole genome sequencing a, a first-line diagnosis, and that's very much the same goal in our pilot in, in the US and California, as the goal of the Genomics England project has been for some time. The second is cancer. This is not treatment uh, choices, but 99% of a particular class of leukemia. We have found likely driver mutations from that single test, and it is really beginning to revolutionize how we understand and how we prognose and how we treat that uh, cancer. And the third is 67% of breast cancer patients. Again, in a small study, it's an early study, it's a pilot study, the numbers are not big. Uh, but two-thirds of them actually have actionable information coming from this test. Uh, and that, again, is a Cambridge uh, collaboration. Just touching moving outside genomes for a moment, because this is all about genomes and DNA, but what about the rest of the world? The rest of the world is also moving very fast. And it was very exciting towards the end of last year uh, to, to see three particular examples, and there are a number of other examples out there, to illustrate how we can, through the diagnosis, lead patients to cures which are being developed by others. And these are revolutionary cures, and I, I, I flagged the first one on purpose. Huntington's disease hits very late. Uh, it's, a, it's a direct diagnosis, but people have a, a, a significant healthy life before it's diagnosed. And there's been a great ethical debate about do you diagnose Huntington's at all? But there's a cure now, and that changes the debate. Or there could be a cure. It's not quite there yet. But having a cure, having actionable information, might change the way we look at that particular example. The second is gene therapy. Uh, inject a virus. It's taken up by the individual. It corrects a defect in hemophilia and allows that person to make factor VIII inside the body instead of having injections two or three times a week and risking injury uh, and possibly death. The third is an early cancer detection test. If you could detect it earlier, you could treat it earlier. Uh, and this test is not directly a whole genome test, but the information from the genome, from the somatic changes, allows the opportunity now with this test that has been developed and published uh, and is in, in use uh, in being developed around the world, including here, uh, is very much a way forward for the future to bring benefit to cancer patients by early detection. I finish uh, with this just summary. Uh, just to, again, reinforce the impact and taking us back to making sense of the world, uh, not just the 100,000 Genomes Project. But there is a global opportunity here that genomics and genetics, as I have briefly described to you, plays a role in almost every condition in life, not just rare disease and cancer. And clearly, right throughout life, from reproductive and prenatal conditions to genetic health in childhood, infectious disease, oncology, common disease, and the process of aging, Genetics is at work, and genetics provides a readout uh, by which we can really examine. And there are the numbers for you. I won't go into them, but from births to cancer, uh, a tremendous panoply of medical conditions, all of which can be contributed to by DNA sequence information, by genomic information, uh, essentially that was seeded by the discovery of DNA, the discovery of sequencing, uh, and the sequencing of the genome. And now the work that you're about to hear much more about sequencing genomes in the UK population uh, from Mark Caulfield. So I'll hand over to you, Mark, uh, to take it over from there.
Thank you. Excellent. Really simple, David. Thank you for a super talk, David. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to move us on to the 100,000 Genomes Project, which really flows from what David has been sharing with you. So the 100,000 Genomes Project was born in an unusual place, the London 2012 Olympics, where the then Prime Minister gathered scientists together, advised him the moment was right uh, to bring a transformation of the way we did genomics in our health service and a freer point of delivery health system. And so Genomics England was formed. It is a wholly owned Department of Health company, so actually you own it. And I work for you um, in delivering this project uh, with your money, by the way. So it's 100,000 genomes. It's not bits of genomes. It's as much as you and I can read of those three billion letters that make you the individual you are, uh, give you your talents in some measure, but also can carry, sadly, susceptibility to disease. It's focused on certain disorders, rare disease, cancer and infection, because those are tractable to healthcare benefits today. I could show you examples of how we can help people in the NHS today with those uh, features. It doesn't reach 100,000 people because in cancer, which is a disease of disordered genomes, we sequence the tumour itself and compare it to the DNA that you inherit from your mum and dad, usually from the blood, and by making that comparison, we can identify the variation in the cancer that is driving the cancer, that might drive the cancer to enlarge, might drive it to spread, might drive it to relapse, might drive response. And all of those features can be detected in some measure by a genome. The data is very large. Uh, a typical genome just from your bloodstream will be about 66 gigabytes in size, and that's actually a smaller version of it. And so therefore, we have a very large data center. Um, to hold the genomes. It's currently 21 petabytes in size, and you probably don't have an MP3 player. In fact, I'm not even sure I know what an MP3 player is. But anyway, it's some sort of music-playing device that was an antecedent of the iPod. And uh, so it would take you 2,000 years to play one petabyte of music. So these data centers are becoming bigger and bigger now, and that's what it requires to store the data. And it's in one single location, and I'll tell you exactly where it is, it's in Corsham and Wiltshire in a secure government data centre. And the reason it's there is this was the most affordable place to put it. Uh, but also, we gave a commitment when we started that we would keep the data in one place and allow scientists to come in through the internet via secure links, which we test very regularly, and work on the data to drive up its value for the NHS. Similarly so, in the same data centre, the National Health Service comes in and works on the data. So to do this, we looked around when we started, and the infrastructure wasn't really there to do this. So working with the National Health Service, uh, they commissioned uh, 13 genomic medicine centres of excellence. And you have one here in Cambridge, where Cambridge leads the whole of the east of England. So Cambridge leads Nottingham, Derby, Le Leicester, and Norfolk in this project. And they've done a fantastic job, and I'll give them some more credit later. That means we reach about 85 NHS trusts across England. And the important thing about these 13 centres, and you'll see them in a moment, is they give effectively equitable access to this project across the 55 million people living in England. There are 1,500 frontline NHS staff that work on this project every week. The reason that that's important is sometimes when we do research, we do research by creating a research team that sits outside of the health system. And then it sometimes takes us longer for the health system to adopt the project. Because this is transforming healthcare, our duty was to actually involve the people who would be delivering this and build the human capacity and capability to deliver this service when Genomics England is gone. And so that's what we've done. And in addition to that, because we won't know how to interpret this data when we first get it for everybody, and our first analysis may not find something of use for an individual patient's care, we've created a coalition of researchers, international researchers, the overwhelming majority of which are from UK, many are from this university here, and uh, those researchers are tasked with driving up the value of this data for clinical care. So they come in and they work on the data to do research, and their benefit is they get to publish on that data. However, their job, and they get free use of the data centre as long as they do it, is to drive up the value for the patients and the participants in the project. So just as summarising the infrastructure, the project is fundamentally based on informed consent, 
and that informed consent uh, engages patients through the genomic medicine centres. And on the right there, you see a map of England uh, and the 13 genomic medicine centres. Well, one of the first things that was very important to me was to get the whole of the United Kingdom involved. And I'm delighted to say that Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales are now in the project. And what happens is that if you become involved in this project, you go to one of the hospitals that are enrolling, you are um, explained what the project is and form consent, some samples are taken. And then what we do is we collect all of your electronic health record that we can from general practice, from any contact you have with hospital, uh, and any other registries that relate to you, identifiable through your NHS number. We bring all that data alongside the genome, and what that helps us to do is to make sense of the genome and make sense of its relevance for you. But also, because we have a very large data set of combined data, we can actually study that data by removing the identifiers in a research environment, and that allows us to make observations across a collection of people affected by a disease that one individual would not show us. So we can actually make findings that have huge population benefit by the altruism of the people who've engaged in this project and their willingness to share their data. The other opportunity that people get through this project is to be recalled for research. So if we identify something that could be of potential benefit to you or how you could help others with similar disorders, we will invite you back to be involved in that research. We have um, also created this community, it's called GSIP, don't worry about what that is, I'll come back to it in a moment, but this is the 2,000 or so researchers that you saw earlier. And we do have some partnerships with industry, because if you and I want the next generation of medicines or treatments, we need to get industry involved earlier working alongside us in a way that will benefit patients here in our NHS, bring new opportunities to people in our country, and bring them here at the earliest possible point, so that we can decide whether these medicines or treatments or diagnostics should be adopted by our health system. Now, this is where we are in the project. So we've collected 79,000 samples. We had to slow the cancer program down somewhat because the original tissue that we were being supplied with, unfortunately, wasn't very good for sequencing. And it's because it had been dropped into a preservative, and that preservative damages DNA. And so we have fewer uh, cancer samples than we have in rare disease. But we have made major advances, and we've now got an exceptionally good cancer genome product that is now informing treatment, and I'll show you an example of how it's done so already. We also had to work very hard with our partner, Illumina, in the sequencing to create a, um, a fast turnaround so that we could get cancer results back to patients fast. And we have now begun to turn around results in 13 days or less in cancer. It is uh, somewhat slower in rare disease, but that's a, a work in progress. So uh, to give you an idea how fast this is moving, 10 days ago we announced the 50,000th genome. Today we have 52,047. And the number of genomes we may have in our data center may even change during the time we're sitting in or standing in this room. So we've returned now over 18,000 reports to families. That's about 9,000 families. And we're achieving a diagnosis. And these are people who've been through multiple tests before. They're very difficult to find the answer for. But we're finding something that's of relevance to them in 20 to 25% of cases. And we've now returned over 1,000. It's actually today 1,300 cancer reports to patients. And in the research environment, therefore researchers, as they move into that environment and work on the de-identified data, uh, are clinical data on 53,000 people and 33,000 whole genomes. And this is where that ecosystem that will drive up the virtual circle, virtuous circle of new findings in the, in the research data that will allow us to bring new things to patients in the clinic. And we dynamically report this. So if something is found for someone for whom we didn't get an initial answer, we will send a new report out and return it to the hospital who will look at it and then decide whether it should be fed back to the patient. So if you're a participant, what are we sharing with you? Well, we're sharing information about your condition, so we will tell you if we find uh, a clear cause for your condition or something that could help you to do something about it. We also look where people choose to have this feedback for some additional serious things that if you knew about these today that are in your genome, you could take action or have some form of screening or something that would be of use to you. And if we didn't tell you those things, you would probably be really upset with us. We also, for some people who want that, will return information 
about uh, events where the, when two genomes come together and make a new baby, uh, there could be a rare disease created. And so we will, for a limited number of conditions, give that information back to parents. And for some of those, that's been very reassuring. I can tell you that 88% of people opt to receive the findings in the rare disease program, all of these findings. And in fact, some of the patients want to receive more. Indeed, I've had emails asking, can I put my genome on Facebook? <laughs> so I'm going to share with you a little bit of detail about the project. Uh, and this is where we are in rare disease. So I'm going to show you a number of cases. And this family, they want you to see them. So normally, we don't show pictures of people. We keep their identity uh, a secret. But they actually want to see you because they're so delighted with the result they got. And I'll tell you about them in a minute. Rare diseases are by definition rare, but because there's over 7,000 of them, they affect about 5% of our population. So there's over 3 million people in our country living with these diseases. And they're very disabling. Uh, a third of these people will die before their fifth birthday. And many of them, about half of them, probably won't get a genomic diagnosis in their life. And if you talk to the parents of children or people affected by these diseases, one of the things they want from you and I, above all else, is an answer for why they're like they are. Because they know... If you or I do not have that answer, then we don't understand the biology of their problem. And if we don't understand the biology, there's no chance of a treatment. So people know this, and they really do want this to work. We're working on 1,200-plus disorders, and they're all nominated by the NHS or researchers, and we're working on those disorders because they've got unmet need. They haven't had a diagnosis, and they can't get an answer from conventional testing. A key to success here has been making detailed measurements and collecting detailed characteristics of those diseases because they allow us to focus the search in the three billion uh, letters that David was talking about. And that's allowed us to get diagnosis in about 20 to 25%. And what that means is that some of the disorders were getting much more than that. So I wanted to share with you, in eye disease, we're achieving diagnosis for certain eye diseases that can cause blindness in 42% of participants. And in intellectual disability, uh, which can carry a lot of different types of disorders, it's about 37%. So that's really pretty good, and I think this will greatly improve with time. So I wanted to share with you about this family here, because the young lady in the middle there, who's now about six, um, actually was born in about four months. She showed developmental delay. She was falling behind other children of her age. And then she started to get fits, and she got intractable fits. They weren't controlled by any medicine at all. And she went to lots and lots of different doctors, lots and lots of different clinics, and got no answer. And eventually, um, she enrolled in a few projects and came then to us. And we found uh, that this young girl has a mutation that's only in her. So when her, she was conceived, in that process, a new change in her DNA developed. And this change disrupted a sugar transporter that transports sugar from her blood into her brain. So she has normal sugar if you measure it in her blood. But in her brain, it drops down low. Now, when you and I have very low blood sugar, it triggers seizures. And they won't respond to antiepileptics because, actually, they're caused by low sugar. So what we did is when we found this, we, we checked out mum and dad. Now, mum and dad had been going to have no further children because they were worried about having a second child like that. But because it's a new mutation in her, they are now considering going on having further children. Well, the other thing this has done, and this won't happen for everybody, in fact, maybe not for that many, is it allowed us, because of previous knowledge about this particular type of defect, that we were able to give this child a high-fat diet. And your and my brain has an ability for starvation protection to make sugar from fat. So high, you give this child a high-fat diet, and she has shown a reduction in her fits, and she makes her own sugar in her brain, and as a result of that, she's also shown some developmental improvement. Now, she'll not be normal, but what if we could have found that at birth and intervened much earlier? What if? And this is the sort of potential power of this. Not for everyone, and maybe not for many, but for some. And this is the journey that we went on to find this young girl's uh, causative change in her DNA. So she had about 6.4 million different variants on her two different chromosomes. They filtered down to 677,000 rare disease, rare variants that could be potentially causing her disease. 2,826 were predicted to change a protein that might be causing a disease. But 67, because her mum and dad were also in the project, were different from her mum and dad. And that allowed us to see one standout candidate that was actually within the sugar transporter. 
So this is the process that we go through. Now we do that process from three billion letters down to one in between 10 and 35 hours, depending on how complex that is. That's, that's what we're doing. And while you're here, the team, my team back at Genomics England, will have sent out more reports while the time we're sitting here back to the NHS. Because they don't get much sleep. We don't let them have any sleep, actually. Uh, we've got to get the results back. So this is another series of families. So I want to describe a set of scenarios so you've got a broader sense of how this is impacting people. So this is a man who lived for almost three decades with no answer for why he had intellectual disability and epilepsy. He'd have over two decades of tests. He'd given up on getting an answer, but his sister got pregnant, and it really worried him that she might have a child in the same, affected in the same way. So he joined the project. We found a ch new change in his DNA that was shorting, shortening a protein. It explained his problems. It was only in him, and we checked uh, the sister, and she didn't have it. So the baby in utero we knew would be normal. And a second family, as a result of his generosity, had been diagnosed. So something I want to emphasize to you is the altruism of the people engaging in this project is that they're bringing answers not just for themselves, but for others across the globe. And if we want to solve some of these diseases, we need to have that personal altruism. So another young girl has been helped by the project. She's 10, and she was, had recurrent admissions to ITU with life-threatening infections. And we, uh, extensive testing had been done in the NHS at much cost, and no diagnosis had been made. We found a change in a gene that regulates the cells that uh, uh, carry immunity in your body, the T cells, and this meant that we knew that once she had this problem, that the only way forward for her to avoid her perishing was to give her a curative bone marrow transplant, and that she's now on the list for that, and it, once that's done, which she's very likely to get, will be uh, a curative event for her. And uh, we've also tested the rest of a family who are not at risk. So just one other, uh, this is a young lad um, who has actually lifelong problems with kidney, heart, and developmental disorders. And he also had, uh, so he had, was given a diagnosis of something called Noonan syndrome. Don't worry about what that is. But actually, he didn't look like someone with Noonan syndrome. He had a number of benign tumors on his hands, on his jaw. He'd had lots of surgery. And you can see his story on our website because he was keen to talk about his experience. He'd been told he had this diagnosis, but his mum, as you would, had been looking up things on the internet and she didn't believe it, and nor did her clinician. And so they entered this young man in the 100,000 Genomes Project, and we found a gene mutation that reclassifies his diagnosis to something else. So the genome can actually metaphorically speak to us and tell us the thing you thought this was is not what you thought, it's this thing over here. So there are a range of opportunities that flow from this. So I'll show you a little cancer genome journey. Now, none of our genomes flow as fast as this DNA molecule through the system, but we get DNA from people who engage in the project generously, and then we sequence this. This is done by a partner, Illumina, in Hingston here in Cambridge. We have a sequencing center there. It's the first NHS genomic sequencing center. Then we reassemble the genome when we get it back, or, the, or Illumina reassemble it, and we create a series of letters that are the variants in the genome, and then we look for what's the most plausible one and we have some companies that help us do that. When we get a, a clear-cut report, we might say that we haven't found anything, but it will say that we will keep on looking. We return it to the National Health Service, and if there's no outcome for the patient, it goes off into the research environment, so researchers can drive up that value. So we're creating that virtuous circle I referred to earlier. Now, cancer's much more challenging. It's really been very difficult, um, and I just want to share a little bit about cancer. So in cancer, we sequence the tumor and usually your blood, compare the two, we're working on all the common cancers and many rare cancers. And now we've got a very good cancer product, so we can actually take small pieces of tissue, biopsies, how cancer is normally diagnosed these days, and actually sequence them and get a very good quality genome. So I wanted to show you some data from the project. Don't worry about the technical details. This is the first 672 patients. And we look across their tumor genome at the variants that are there, and these are single letter changes. And in the pink, the message I want to give you is these are people's uh, um, changes that could affect their treatment. So about 66% of people have a potential opportunity to have a change or a selection of treatment. And what I wanted to share with you, therefore, is that this is not a no-hope result. And for example, in a resource-constrained health system, imagine that the drugs that are really expensive can't be given to all the people with the cancer, but what if 
you and I could find the right person to receive that medicine and make sure they got it. Then this becomes much more affordable. So here's a story from our cancer program. So this is, um, on this is a family tree here, and the squares are men, circles are women, and diagonal lands sadly means people have died. Uh, and a, a shaded in uh, circle means that the person's affected. So this lady volunteered from our for our project having been diagnosed with breast cancer. And what we found was surprising. She had no family history of breast cancer. She didn't come from any at-risk communities for an inheritory cause of breast cancer. But she had what's called a BRCA2 mutation, and you've probably heard of BRCA mutations. And um, BRCA mutations, if they are damaging, can increase your risk of breast and ovarian and prostate cancer. So I wanted to show you this because what this meant for this lady is that she was able to be entered in a clinical trial and she received a new medicine that would not have been available to her on the NHS called Olaparib. And this uh, lady was also now considered whether, in addition to having had her breast cancer removed because she's past childbearing age, whether she should have her ovaries removed because you can get ovarian cancer in later life from this. But also, her, she's involved her family, and her daughter is also carrying a BRCA2 mutation in her genome, in her blood. And so she's now entering intensive screening for potential breast cancer and is considering potential breast reduction surgery. The important thing here is that she's had an informed choice of that. But there is implications for the men in this lady's family. Her brothers and her son, are, if they are carriers of BRCA2, are at increased risk of prostate cancer. So the implications that we find from this program may not be confined to the individual enrolled, but may have broader ramifications. So we've got to be very careful with this information, and not everyone will want to know this, and we must respect that. That's very important. But this has been an opportunity, and this family see it as so. So we do have a research coalition. I'm just going to show you that very briefly with that. So we've over 2,700 researchers now. It's gone up. They're from 366 uh, academic, 363 academic institutions in 24 countries. And they've volunteered to work on this data to drive its value up for patients. I just wanted to share with you how we're changing the health system. From October 2018, there will be a new genomic medicine service in our health system. And there will be genomic medicine centers I described earlier. There'll be a national laboratory network of seven different labs across England. Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales will also be involved. In light blue, Genomics England will concentrate the entire genomic testing from the NHS in one location, and that will allow us to see what tests are performing well, and when it's right, move tests possibly to whole genome sequencing. And we will also continue in our partnership with Lumina to run the whole genome sequencing center and its clinical interpretation and form partnerships with industry, academia, and internationally so we maximize the value for these data. So against the odds and in a resource-constrained environment, we have just finished last year, my team with the NHS, reprofiling 750,000 genomic tests deployed across England. And when we started this project, it was huge inequity of access to healthcare. From October, every part of the English mainland will have the opportunity, it's only mainland, isn't it? Um, uh, it's <laughs> Uh, I must be getting tired. But the important thing is everywhere in England will have the same access to genomic testing for the first time. And that's equitable access for 55 million people. But amazingly, because of the price fall that David said, this is the number of whole genomes that will be available to people who should have that as a diagnostic test as part of their care. And there will be a national test directory, not a catalogue, not a guideline, but a directory which says this is the test order that you should do this for this person so that everybody gets the best care and the best testing. So we've got an industry partnership. There's over 40 companies working with us and we're really trying to bring new molecules. An example of the benefit of this is we have a pancreatic cancer trial live in Britain because of this project with a medicine that would never have come here because alongside it there'll be a whole genome and the people thought this is worth bringing this new medicine to Britain first. Now, pancreatic cancer is a terrible disease, and anything we can do to get care for that is, is a fantastic advance. We have some international partnerships. Our strongest one is with the French, which we signed recently, and we're working with France Genomic, which is the other large project of a similar nature in the world. The others are at more formative phases, but international collaboration is important for making sense of this data. We don't always have a monopoly of good ideas in Britain, but we are world leaders. This is a world-leading project. Nobody else is doing this like this in the world. So you are world leaders. Go home with that notion tonight. 
and uh, or at least you're funding the world leading bit. Thank you for that. So I wanted to say finally, against the odds and against what you hear on television, the National Health Service is doing the most fantastic job here of transforming itself into a 21st century service providing genomic testing. It's doing that by changing the way in which it did it before, which is releasing money to reprofile that money to be used more effectively. We will continue to support them in this mission by concentrating genomic testing and creating a knowledge base that will allow us to provide answers for people who've not been able to achieve answers through routine care. And so I finished by saying an enormous thank you to the East of England Genomic Medicine Centre based here in Cambridge. You should be very proud of them at Addenbrooke's Hospital. I'm sure you are. And thank these people who also want to see you, who are a section of our participants, some of whom have received answers for why they're like they are and you for listening to me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. For questions, does anyone want to start? All right. Oh, I was interested in if you were going to recommend that whole genome sequencing be implicated for all clinical conditions. Um, versus using exome sequencing or other more targeted sequences, and if it was cost-effective to do so? So um, we did health economics, and I have to tell you that there are a range of genomic tests that the test directory includes. Some are very simple genetic tests because that's the right thing. It works very well, gives you an answer, and doesn't cost much. Ranging up to what you just said, which are panels, which is where we targeted bits of the genome, and we just target those bits, including up to whole genomes. So <coughs> it's a range of tests. But what we've done is create an equitable framework for access to the best test for your condition and, and a testing hierarchy. So you can go to whole genome if you need to. Yes. I've got microphones over there. You need a microphone here. Uh, sorry. Do you want to go next? Okay. Um, <coughs> uh, my question is related to um, what, what is known about the extent of po false positives and false negatives and what's the implication of that for genetic sequencing in a clinical environment? So there's still, there, there still are occasional false positives and there are occasional false negatives. So in this context, if I were to send you back a report and say we haven't found anything, it does not mean there's not something there. It just means exactly what I've said, which is we haven't found it. And there are certain things that are di really difficult to find. And David showed you a picture of one particular type of variant that can be quite challenging for us, amongst others they can be very difficult to see. That's why we wanted the coalition of researchers. In terms of false positives, it is the case in a small number of people with rare disease that they will initially receive an answer which when we know more we realise wasn't the complete answer for their condition and we have to change that answer. And sometimes some people have um, changes in their DNA that don't express themselves in an individual in the same way. So we can have people in the same family who have changes but actually one family member's fine and the other family member isn't. And we're there we suspect there are other modifier factors elsewhere, perhaps in their genetic code, which we need to find. So there are some false positives, that's true. I want to elaborate on what you say that some members of the family that had the disease and others don't have it, although they had the same mutation. No? So I want to talk about the science of epigenetics yes. that say that how genes express is dependent on diet and other environmental factors Yes, you're absolutely right. David, do you want to talk about multiomics in that context? Because I think that's an important point. Certainly. Um, so uh, we recognize while the genome is a great place to start for the history that I've shown you, certainly it's very important to know how the different genes are being read in the normal tissues uh, and how indeed things go, go differently in, in a particular mutation. So one of the things that we have been collaborating with both Genomic England and others is to look at the very important next stage in the reading of that information, which is the RNA. Uh, so the DNA is the entire genome, but from every gene, there's a molecule of RNA or many molecules of RNA which are made, which are the messenger, it's called messenger RNA, the messenger to take the genetic information into a different form to make a protein. And clearly, if something has gone wrong at the DNA level, then that will be reflected faithfully in the RNA and will then lead to a different protein <coughs> with a functional problem. So we can use DNA sequencing to look at RNA as well and convert RNA to DNA to sequence it. And so we can begin to build up a profile of not just what the inheritance is and what the cell starts with, but what the cell is actually using in terms of the information. 
And there's another whole level of this. Actually, sometimes the DNA is also modified and methylated and so on by, by biological processes, uh, by exposure indeed to environments or signals. And so we do want to increase the portfolio of information that comes into this project. But there's more, I think it's fair to say, it's more at a research level. Mm. Uh, we would be wary of interpreting too much at the moment. The false positive or false negative findings would be worse if we placed too much faith in this. But it is certainly true that we and others around the world, some of whom are on that list that you showed, are looking very much at the role of, the, of interpreting the RNA, the RNA readout, alongside the genome, particularly for cancer, but possibly for other diseases as well. A proper, you need a proper diet. diet. Yes. Yes. Yes, so yes, silencing of bits of the genome. So uh, the question really was, when you um, don't have the right diet, there are changes that are made in your DNA to silence bits of them, switch them off, and that's uh, called methylation. Um, don't worry about what it is, but it doesn't necessarily work so well. Uh, it, it, and so therefore, you may be more exposed to uh, potential for harm. And actually, because that can be transmitted, uh, it's possible that in the next generation that harm could also exist. So some of the diseases that we spend a lifetime incubating uh, from birth to when we get affected by them could be due to changes where bits of the DNA have been silenced through life exposure. Uh, you talked about the sort of the Moore's law of cost of, of doing the sequencing and the analysis. When do you think we all get to or should we get to a point where everybody is sequenced at birth? That's banked. And then you don't, you're not just targeting people with uh, a, a condition, but you're doing some analysis at the start. $1,000 a piece mm. is cheap, I guess, for everybody in the population. I know the analysis is much more expensive, but banking that at birth means you've got a wealth of data you can work on. And when new targets appear, you can mm. then rescan and, and uh, re-advise and retreat. That, that's a very interesting point. Um, we're not at the point where it would be affordable to do that in the NHS. There's about a million people born. Uh, actually, no, it's more than 1.5 million births a year in, uh, in, in Britain. So um, that would be a lot of money right now. But you could see a point when that might be important. So, for example, for the girl that I showed you earlier, if we'd known much earlier about that problem, it's possible that the outcome could have been different. I can't say that, and I don't know that. But what if we could do those things? There might also be the possibility to give people lifetime risk profiles for some of the disorders which have a major genetic determination. Uh, but of course, what that would also mean is, for the reasons that were said earlier, it could allow you to, or family, to choose a much healthier or different lifestyle than they might have done otherwise. So all these things are possible. However, we can only do that when society, in total, embraces the notion of doing that. And some people would worry that this is... Um, uh, some form of genetic experiment. I personally think this, is, this will come, and I think if you talk to people who are mums and dads or people affected by some of these diseases, they, if there was any chance, any remote chance that being sequenced at birth would have changed the outcome, they would take it straight away. Um, are there various medical applications of genomics that you guys have highlighted? Are there any particular ones that you might say could benefit from new technology development, or is this largely a question of clever implementation and bigger, bigger data sets? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Um, I think where we are today has certainly come about from multiple new and changing technologies, so it's very important to consider the value of innovation in its own right. Um, somewhat to the previous question, $1,000 doesn't sound a lot, but it sounds a lot to him. Uh, <laughs> the NHS can't afford it. So if there was a really overwhelming uh, discussion, debate by people in here to say, we really do want to sequence everybody at birth because there are enough children who could be saved by simple dietary supplements or early intervention or put on early screening programs if we knew what to expect. It's not just one in a million. Rare disease, close to 5%. Nearly all in early birth, the cost of intensive care is big. Yeah. So the cost equation is, is not so far wrong. But now take that $1,000 figure and say, well, if the technology really, if there's really an appetite for it, 
if there's a market for it, that gets the industries <coughs> interested in developing the technique and driving it further. We haven't stopped with our current platform. The curve continues to go down, uh, and we continue to invest in that because of projects like this. If this project had really failed to take off, had not grabbed the population's imagination, your imagination, this project would be winding up, maybe 100,000, maybe less. Uh, but it's not. It's received overwhelming attention, uh, and therefore there is definitely, we, are, we know now we are just scratching the surface. And so there's a great deal more to do. So now technology has to step in to address a bigger problem, a bigger expense, potentially extract greater value. So that's a rather general answer to what can we do with new technology, but quite simply, we've done a million-fold reduction in the cost uh, of this over eight years. That's a pretty major transformation. Think how much your Ferrari would cost today if Ferrari had managed to do that. Um, not a great example, but <laughs> uh, I'll work on that. Um, uh, but then also we talked a little bit about these much more researchy ways, examining the readout from the human body in other ways. And I'll just go a little broader for a moment. In that the blood is an incredible source of information. We've talked about the DNA from the blood. I alluded to the DNA outside the cells in the blood, which actually is the early indicator for cancer. But there's RNA in the blood, there's proteins in the blood, there's your methylation patterns in the blood. Uh, and so if we were able to take those readouts and push a button and get it all for $1,000 or £1,000 or £600, we would suddenly be in command of a great deal more information to begin to understand more about the features which were discussed earlier in terms of the RNA, the methylation, all sorts of other readouts. And there are some people looking very cleverly at some protein signals as well as some RNA signals as well as some DNA signals. Methylation is really in its infancy. So that's where we do need better technologies, cheaper technologies, new technologies, and then to be able to reduce it to practice so that he can afford it. And we'll adopt it as soon as it's uh, of that price level. Well, as soon as we've got the evidence to do it. Getting the NHS to do something like this is very challenging because usually we wait till me medicines or diagnostics are very well established. Uh, but here, they've really embraced change. If we can make this work together, that's you, me, David, others here, then what will happen is that they will do things in the future this way because actually they've realized that they've released a whole load of potential from revising their testing framework to more modern technologies. And you might think that's going to cost an enormous amount, but when they've reprofiled, although they are investing more in this, they've actually realized that they could save money in other areas to release it for this program. I think it's something that you mentioned as well earlier, which I perhaps is worth emphasizing here, is that not only is this a very rapid introduction of a new approach, a new technology, based on fundamental research, it's doing very fast, and it's already national. And what has been a problem in the past all over the world has been the inequality of access to various things because a group does some research, makes a finding, sets up a test. Much of this testing is not NHS funded. It's funded from local sources. But therefore, the next laboratory has not gone down the same route. And so it doesn't offer the same tests. And I think the idea of really standardizing that through having access to robust technology uh, around the country forming national networks, I think is a huge benefit potentially for patients so that many more people can be actually uh, have the, you know, a benefit from, from that standardized So I realize we're approaching the eight o'clock mark, but we have one last question from the young woman over there. So I heard that uh, the human genome, like just 5% of it uh, codes for genes. So what does the rest of material do? What is it for? Okay. What's the rest of the What's genome the rest for? Of the genome for? <laughs> well, that's useful to pick up on a question that came from over there earlier. Uh, there's a single gene panel exome genome. Um, the genome, and I can't remember your percentage, but I reckon 1 to 2% is the, yeah, is the protein coding of the genes. Uh, quite a bit of that is in the middle of the genes but isn't coding. And so you can disrupt parts of the genome that are not the genes and still have uh, a very important deleterious medical effect. Cancer is a particularly important example of that. Uh, a number of the, the, particularly leukemias, but all cancers, they're not point mutations in, in the protein coding. I showed you one, in fact, where the gene was amplified. Three genes were amplified. If you'd looked in the protein coding for a single base change, you'd not have <coughs> seen anything 
you had to look either at the amplification of the DNA or indeed the RNA profile being elevated to see that those genes were being expressed at a higher level than normal, so much so uh, that it caused cancer. So we don't want to miss those. And we would miss them by doing the exome, the panel, or the single gene test. So that's a, a very prevalent example, and I showed that rather complex slide with different variants on it. The bigger the variant, the more complex the change. Actually, it falls outside a protein coding region, but they cause cancer, and they cause other diseases too. And in fact, at least 10, if not 15% of the pediatric rare genetic diseases that have taken our numbers higher, that's 66%, are caused by big copy number variants. And so these are effectively not coding changes at all. So there's a great deal to be found. There's one other answer to your question, what does the rest of the genome do? Uh, as well as harboring these mutations that we need to find, uh, of course, there are many other areas of that of the genome which are involved in regulation of the genes, of the protein coding genes. So if you look inside a protein coding gene, you can't see why the regulation's gone wrong. Whether it's just upstream of the gene, the start process, or whether it's something about a million bases away that actually has some long-range interaction. And it, this does happen quite regularly. Uh, and so there are many mechanisms of how the genome is read which lie within the non-protein coding regions of the genome. We understand them much less, but if we don't sequence them and we don't look at people who are sick because of the changes, we'll never find out how to understand and interpret those. If we do sequence the whole genome of, let's say, 100,000 people, we will begin to have a, a database by which we can really start to look at those complex ones. Then we'll start to pick off the false negatives. We'll find it after all. It wasn't where we looked first, but a year later we learned how to look. Yeah. Things like AI help in this a great deal. Other fields of science that are changing the way we look at genes. We can only look where we can see something. But these automatic tools can look where we don't even think to look and show us a signal, and then perhaps we can go in and look at the interpretation. So there's a wealth of information in the genome and not in the genes. And some slightly bad news to finish. You've also got quite a few viruses in there that you've been exposed to, which sit and remain bits of viral DNA in your genome, you just carry them with you. But the, once the virus is gone, you're usually okay. <laughs> so Great. if you do want to know more about this, please do look there, what David and I have been talking about tonight. Uh, and we will finish the project by the 31st of December 2018, or I go to the Tower of London. <laughs> Great. Thank On you. that note, let's thank Dr. Bentley and Professor Colton. For thank, you. thank you. Thank you.